And we're just going to take two verses this morning. From Luke chapter 11, verses 27 and 28. Luke 11, 27 and 28. In context here, Jesus had cast out a demon. And then some people in the crowd said that he had cast out that demon by the power of the prince of the demons, Beelzebub. And then Jesus makes it clear that Satan will not cast out Satan. A house divided cannot stand. And that Jesus, the stronger man, is spoiling the house of the strong man, Satan. After he has said these things, then in verse 27, it says, As it happened, as he spoke these things, that a certain woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast which nursed you. But he said, More than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Now as we examine this, we have a statement here by this woman in the crowd about Mary, the mother of Jesus. So it brings up a lot of questions, doesn't it? The Roman Catholic Church exalts Mary to the heavens. They believe that Mary was bodily assumed into heaven, namely that her body and soul were taken into heaven. Her body did not see corruption in this earth. It wasn't put in the grave and rotted away in the grave. They believe that she was perpetually a virgin, that she never knew a man and never had any other children besides the Lord Jesus Christ. They also believe in what they call the Immaculate Conception. That's not the conception of Christ, but her conception, namely, that Mary was conceived free of all sin, free of original sin, and that she never sinned once throughout her entire life. These are called dogmas of the Roman Catholic Church. A dogma means that someone should believe these things if they are to be a faithful and a devout Christian. Well, you would hope that there would be solid biblical support before any church would declare something a dogma. Remember what we talked about last week that those things which are essential to the faith must have a solid, solid biblical support. And the farther we move away from those, the less tenaciously we hold to them until it gets into the realm of that outer circle. Remember, we had five different circles. The outer one was just pure speculation. You shouldn't be dogmatic about things that are purely speculative. Well, as most of you know, Protestants in general strongly disagree with these dogmas concerning Mary that are preached in the Roman Catholic Church. As a result, many Protestants then are labeled as anti-Mary by the Roman Catholic Church. But as we examine this question about these dogmas, we have to ask, as we do with everything else, what say the scriptures? What say the scriptures? 
And we need to ask ourselves, in light of Jesus' statement, that those who hear and keep the word of God are blessed, are these dogmas doctrines which we must hear and which we must obey? Let's look at the scriptures. You know, in our text today, we hear the voice of this woman who radically cries out from the crowd. Do you realize what a radical thing that was for a woman in particular in that day, in public, in a crowd, to lift her voice and cry out like that? It might even be uncommon today in a, a general crowd where somebody's speaking for somebody to just cry out in praise of the person. I suppose you'd get that at a lot of political rallies, though, wouldn't you? But for a woman in that day, that was a radical action. Women were considered very, very beneath men. And they couldn't testify in courts. In general, the rabbis wouldn't teach a woman the law. So this was a radical action. She expresses praise for the mother of Jesus. In essence, then, she is saying, you are such an incredible son you must have had an incredible mother. Praise your mother for raising such a good son, for having such a good son. Then we hear Jesus respond here. So here's the question. Does Jesus contradict her? Does Jesus confirm her statement? Or does he expand on her words? Let's consider that for a moment. Depending on your translation of the Bible, this might read just slightly differently. I'm reading from the New King James Version, and it says, As it happened, as he spoke these things, a certain woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast which nursed you. But he said, and this is what we're examining in verse 28, is he contradicting what she says is he confirming what she says or is he expanding on her words that he said more than that blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it this would sound more like an expansion than a direct contradiction wouldn't it he's saying more than that blessed are those who hear the word of God and who keep it Uh, the King James Version reads but he said yea rather Blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. This sounds like an expansion in some sense as well. Yea, rather, blessed are those. So it doesn't sound like, no, you're wrong. It's not Mary that's blessed, but it's those who hear the word of God and keep it. But yes, but then don't miss this point as well. An expansion, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Um, some other translations, such as the New American Standard, may bring this out as more of a contradictory statement. The New American Standard says that he said, On the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. That conveys more of a contradiction, doesn't it? On the contrary. Well, as we examine this and as we consider the whole testimony of the Gospel of Luke. Remember, a principle for interpreting the Scriptures is that you look at the immediate context, which would be the very paragraph that the statement is made in, 
then you would look at the context of the book of the Bible that the statement falls in. So we can look at the Gospel of Luke and we can ask, does it give us any clues as to how we should consider the statement? As we do that, and as we look back to Luke chapter 1, I think we see here that Luke, in including these statements, and statements even of Holy Spirit-inspired persons here, that Mary truly is blessed. And she's to be considered blessed by all. So look at Luke chapter 1, verse 42, first of all. Luke 1.42 And remember, when the Bible is giving a, a narrative account, when it's telling about things that people said or that people did, what they say and what they do is not necessarily right just because it's in the Bible. You do realize that there are lots of things recorded in the Bible of people who did bad things. And we have to look at the commandments of scripture to see whether they obeyed because sometimes the immediate text doesn't say whether they were right or whether they were wrong. You know a lot of people and this is a side note but a lot of people just jump and they'll pull a verse out of Job for instance and they say well it's in the Bible it's got to be true right? Do you realize that there were three counselors of Job there that had some messed up theology and the Bible was recording what they said but God rebuked them in the end and said that they were speaking in error. So just because it's written in the Bible doesn't mean it's accurate. But here, oh, what's happening here? Mary rose in those days, went into the hill country with haste, this is 39 of chapter 1, to a city of Judah, entered the house of Zacharias, greeted Elizabeth, and it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary that the babe leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And then she speaks. Do you think this is accurate? Who's speaking through her? God himself. What does she say? Then she spoke with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. She blessed, and this was actually even the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking through her. Okay? Look also then at verse 48. What does Mary say? He has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant, for behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. They will call me blessed. So, looking at that in context then, I think when Jesus here, in our text, speaks to this woman, that he's not directly contradicting her and saying, no, Mary is not blessed. I don't think he's saying that at all. But I think he's expanding on her statement. So he's saying, in essence, that is true, but it is even more blessed to be one who hears the word of God and obeys it than just to be my physical mother. Now think about Mary for a moment, though. Mary was doubly blessed. Did she hear the word of God and obey it? She said, let it be done unto me. She said, I am the handmaiden of the Lord. She's doubly blessed in that sense. Doubly blessed. She was the physical mother of Jesus and also 
one who heard the word of God and obeyed it, who kept it. So she is truly blessed among women. But, was she taken both body and soul into heaven? Was she a perpetual virgin? Was she sinless? If you ask the Roman Catholic Church, they say yes to all those. This morning we're going to ask them, I want to give you their exact words from their official documents, and then I want to ask, what saith the Lord? Because here's the point. If we're going to be those that hear the word of God and obey it, and the word of God says we must here, namely, both comprehend and embrace these dogmas about Mary, then we better do it. Otherwise, we're not going to be blessed if we're deliberately and intentionally going against what God would have us to believe. So, let's consider these. First of all, the bodily assumption of Mary. This from paragraph 966 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. And I quote, Finally, the Immaculate Virgin, preserved free from all stain of original sin, when the course of her earthly life was finished, was taken up body and soul into heavenly glory and exalted by the Lord as queen over all things, so that she might be the more fully conformed to her Son, the Lord of Lords and conqueror of sin and death, you conceive the living God and by your prayers you will deliver our souls from death. So notice that there. They say in their catechism that she was taken up body and soul into heavenly glory and exalted by the Lord as queen over all things. Now, even the Roman Catholic scholars will admit that there is no explicit support in Scripture whatsoever for this dogma. They have to admit that. There's no verse that says this is what happened. Some of them might allude to Revelation chapter 12 where there was a, a woman mentioned there and the dragon trying to destroy the woman. But they even disagree on that and whether that was actually speaking about Mary, and there's no specific mention of that woman being actually taken up into heaven bodily in Roman, or Revelation chapter 12. And then there's also the fact that Revelation chapter 12 is an incredibly figurative book. So sometimes determining the symbolism in the book is very difficult, and Christians disagree widely regarding what the individual symbols there in the book represent. Okay. Well, what about church tradition then? You do realize that the Roman Catholic Church exalts their tradition to the level of Scripture. They say that the traditions, the sacred tradition, which has been passed down from the apostles, must be adhered to, and when it is infallibly proclaimed by the church, that it is equally authoritative. Ultimately, it comes down to, they believe it's equally authoritative to the Scriptures themselves. What about the tradition? If this is to be a dogma, we would expect some mention of this in the early church, right? But you know what? There's no mention of the end of Mary and her life until the 4th century in the church. I'm very thankful this morning for information from the Christian Apologetics and Research Ministry and also from Alpha and Omega Ministries and uh, James White. But this is from the 
CARM, Christian Apologetics Research Ministry website. It says, the Roman Catholic scholar Michael O'Carroll explains that Epiphanius, in the 4th century, a church father, gives the earliest mention of anything concerning the end of Mary's life when he says regarding Epiphanius' mention of Mary in AD 377. Okay, pause for a minute here. The Conrad site is quoting a Roman Catholic scholar now who says that there's no mention of this up until the 4th century. Here's the quotation from the Roman Catholic scholar's work. In a later passage, he, Epiphanius, says that she, Mary, may have died and been buried or been killed as a martyr or she remained alive since nothing is impossible with God and he can do whatever he desires for her end no one knows. End quote. So even there, Roman Catholic scholar says this is the first time that we find in the church any mention of Mary and what happened to her body, for instance, whether she died or didn't. And this guy says, we don't know. We don't have a clue. Okay. Um, this again from the Calm website. In light of this evidence, it is obvious that the Roman Catholic dogma of the Assumption of Mary has no early attestation. In fact, the first reasonable mention, according to the Roman Catholic Church, is found in St. John Damascene, who lived in the 700s. This is a blatantly obvious historical, not to mention biblical, vacuum concerning Mary's assumption. Obviously, such a dogma, such an all-important essential of the Christian faith, would have been mentioned by at least some of the church fathers within the first few centuries, but it wasn't. Why? Because it wasn't taught, and it is not a true doctrine of Christianity. So here's, here's another question, though, regarding this. Most Roman Catholic scholars believe that Mary did die before her body was taken to heaven, but that her body didn't go into the grave and rot. Okay, So they believe that she died and then she was taken up into heaven. There's one question here. They also believe that Mary was without sin. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. If she was without sin, why did she die? Just a question. There's no scriptural evidence for this. Therefore, this should not be a dogma of any church whatsoever. Okay, but what about the perpetual virginity of Mary? Again, I quote from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 510. Mary remained a virgin in conceiving her son, a virgin in giving birth to him, a virgin in carrying him, a virgin in nursing him at her breast, always a virgin. With her whole being, she is the handmaid of the Lord. They teach in many of the other documents that Mary did not have any other children after Jesus was born, and that she never had physical relations even with her husband Joseph after Jesus was born or at any time in her life. So Roman Catholics ultimately use this teaching to exalt Mary. Now, think about these two things for just a moment. Whether or not Mary was 
actually bodily taken into heaven, whether or not she remained a virgin. Is that is that really a big deal in and of itself either way? Is it a big deal either way in general? In general, I'll be frank, it's not that important to me. Could God have taken her to heaven? Sure he could have. The Bible doesn't say one way or the other. Is it possible for that uh, she could have been a virgin? Well, in the end game, it doesn't make that much difference to me one way or the other, but here's what does make a difference to me. Let's say it's the scriptures. That's what makes the difference. Does it affect any major doctrine ultimately whether Mary was taken up into heaven or whether or not she remained a virgin afterwards? No, it doesn't. But what say of the scriptures? That's the question. What say of the scriptures? That is very important then. Very important indeed. So what do you think? What say of the scriptures regarding this? What say of Matthew chapter 1, for instance? Matthew chapter 1 The Lord appears to Joseph in a dream The angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream It says Joseph son of David Verse 20 Do not be afraid to take to you Mary your wife For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit She will bring forth the son You will call his name Jesus For he will save his people from their sins so all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took to him his wife, and notice verse 25, and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and called his name Jesus. What do you think there? Was she perpetually a virgin? What does it say? He did not know her. He did not have physical relations with her till, until she brought her firstborn son. What does that indicate? In the entire context of this, which is the pronouncement of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, what this indicates is that up until that point of birth, she was a virgin. But then... After that, it says very clearly that he had relations with her afterward. Well, the scriptures also mention in numerous places Jesus' brothers. And the Greek word for brother is used specifically. Now, the Roman Catholic Church will say, well, that can also mean cousin, though. And because we know that Mary was perpetually a virgin, therefore, these cannot be referring to actual other children of Mary. But notice the faulty logic there. First you have to prove from Scripture that Mary was perpetually a virgin. There is no Scripture which says that she is perpetually a virgin. So, when we look at these other passages, rather than reinforce her perpetual virginity, it shows us the opposite 
and that she did have children afterward as we couple that even with Matthew chapter 1. But look down Matthew 12 then for a moment. We'll look at two verses here in Matthew, two of about uh, seven or eight at least, that mention the brothers of Jesus. Matthew chapter 12, 46 and 47, first of all. While he, Jesus, was still talking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and brothers stood outside speaking, seeking to speak to him. There we have a mention of the brothers. Look also over at Matthew 13, 55. Matthew 13, verse 55. Statement here from folks in the crowd. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So they were offended at him. Here we have actually even the names of brothers of Jesus. Again, I think this is solid support that Mary did have children after the Lord Jesus was born. And notice the context of this. Is not this the carpenter's son? Who would the carpenter be? That would be Joseph, right? Is not his mother called Mary? And his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. So we've got the father mentioned. We've got the mother mentioned. The Roman Catholic Church will say that's Joseph and that's Mary. But then, whoop! Nope! Those aren't brothers there who are the actual children of Joseph and Mary. No, 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 that can't be because Mary was perpetually a virgin. Remember? Well, what does it say in Scripture? It doesn't. That's sacred tradition of the church. But we know that's the case, so this can't mean that. And then they'll say, well, that that could refer to cousins, that could refer to adopted children, that could refer to stepchildren, you know, and then come up with all kinds of answers. But long and short of it here, Joseph knew Mary, had physical relations with her after Jesus was born. Jesus had brothers and sisters, therefore Mary was not perpetually a virgin. Okay, one final dogma then. The Immaculate Conception. And again, we're considering this subject of Mary and her place in the teaching of the church based upon this statement of the woman in the crowd, blessed are you, and then that question of how are we to consider Mary herself. The Immaculate Conception, this from the Catholic Catechism, again, paragraph 508, from among the descendants of Eve, God chose the Virgin Mary to be the mother of his son, full of grace. Mary is the most excellent fruit of redemption, From the first instant of her conception, she was totally preserved from the stain of original sin, and she remained pure from all personal sin throughout her life. 
The Catechism of the Catholic Church also in paragraph 722 says, The Holy Spirit prepared Mary by His grace. It was fitting that the mother of Him in whom the full fullness of deity dwells bodily should herself be full of grace. She was, by sheer grace, conceived without sin as the most humble of creatures, the most capable of welcoming the inexpressible gift of the Almighty. End quote. What do you think here? Is this one maybe a little more serious of an issue than the other two? The other two, you could say, well, the scripture gave evidence, or it doesn't say, you know, okay, you could speculate she was taken up into heaven, but, you know, I'm not going to be dogmatic about it, but okay, one way or the other. Might even say, well, perpetually a virgin. And I wouldn't have a problem with that if there wasn't scriptural evidence against it, but it doesn't affect any real major doctrines one way or the other. But what about when you get to this idea of her being absolutely, perfectly sinless from the moment she was conceived all the way to her death or her being taken up into heaven? I think this becomes a little more serious, and we'll talk about why in a moment. Again, we ask ourselves, let's say if the scriptures, is there any scriptural support for this? The Roman Catholic Church looks to one verse in the Bible, and in particular, one word in the Greek text in the Bible, a participle, and they build their entire case for this doctrine, besides sacred tradition, of course, which we talk about the sufficiency of scripture, that means we don't look to any sacred tradition to tell us what the truth is we look to scripture regarding these spiritual things one verse Luke 1 verse 28 Luke 1 28 the angel Gabriel sent by God to Mary and having come in the angel said to her Rejoice highly favored one the Lord is with you blessed are you among women ok that's clear settles it right she was without sin from the moment she was conceived to the end of her life here's what they do we have that greeting there by Gabriel and he says that she is a highly favored one in the accepted translation of the scriptures in the Roman Catholic Church, which is the Latin Vulgate, it reads that she, Mary, there is being addressed as one who is full of grace. Who is full of grace. The Greek words for full of grace are not in the Greek text of the New Testament whatsoever. That is a mistranslation of the scriptures. But they will then grab onto that that they believe was said, full of grace, and then they will say, well, if she was full of grace, that means she must have been conceived without sin and had no sin in her whatsoever for her entire life. You know what, there's some big problems. That's still an incredible stretch there, even if the corrupt translation was right in that instance. That'd still be a stretch. There are two places in the New Testament where 
the Greek words for full of grace are used, though. Let's look at those and see what those might teach us. First of all, look over at John chapter 1. And verse 14. John 1 verse 14. And the Word, and who's the Word? Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, was Jesus conceived without sin? You bet He was. Did He ever sin at any time throughout His life? No, He didn't. Okay? But now let's look at the other place that full of grace is used. Acts chapter 6. And verse 8. Stephen, full of grace, some translations may say faith there, full of grace and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Do we have any reason to believe that Stephen was conceived without sin and that he never sinned throughout his entire life. No, and the Roman Catholic Church won't even say that Stephen was without sin in such a way. So you can see, I hope, that there is such a stretch being done here. First of all, to build this entire doctrine off of one word in the Scripture which doesn't in any way, shape, or form inherently mean absolutely without sin shows that there is no scriptural support for this, ultimately. There is no scriptural support. So, is this a dogma that we should hear and that we should keep? No, it's not. No, it is not. The Bible tells us, even, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There was only one who was ever sinless, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. All others have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That includes Mary. Although she is blessed among women, and we are to consider her very highly. Can you imagine being the very mother of the Messiah? You know, parents, maybe you think you have a problem child. It's difficult to raise your little depraved, sinful child. Can you imagine how difficult it would have been to raise a perfect child? Absolutely perfect. No flaws whatsoever. I would propose that that would be much more difficult. Why? Because any time there was any type of dispute between mother and son, son's always right. (laughs) Mother's always wrong. (laughs) So... You think about that for a minute. And think about how difficult it must have been for Jesus. Remember at the temple after that event there, though, it says that he submitted to his parents. Children, you, you may think, oh, boy, I have to put up with my parents. What a difficult thing. Think about Jesus. He was perfect. 
he knew when his mama and daddy were wrong, and he was absolutely right that they were wrong. Now, children, and I remember being there, you know, I'd have time to say, I thought dad was wrong. And I look back and say, no, I was the one who was wrong. I was a 12-year-old kid, didn't have a clue what I was talking about, you know. It's not that fathers and mothers can't be wrong, but oftentimes the kids don't really know what they're talking about. But Jesus always knew what he was talking about. So, yes, Mary is honored. She's blessed. But, was she sinless? No. No, she was not. Mary herself, in Luke chapter 1, prays unto God, her Savior. She says, God, my Savior. She needed a Savior just as we do. Not sure the Roman Catholic Church has an explanation for that. She was saved from ever sinning in the first place. It's not that she was saved like us from having sin, but she but you see the, all the double talk that has to go into this. It's a dogma, it's a doctrine that does not have scriptural support, and so then there has to be much, much twisting of the scriptures to support the dogma. So here again, let me ask this as we begin to apply this. Which of these three dogmas do you think is most significant? The bodily assumption of Mary? The perpetual virginity of Mary? Or that she was sinless? Again, remember, regarding bodily assumption, no scriptures say that Mary wasn't taken bodily to heaven. And, you know, I'm sure many of you are thinking about this. There were a couple guys that were taken bodily into heaven, weren't there? Enoch and Elijah. But also on the other side, there's no scriptural support for this doctrine. So it should be placed in that outer circle that we looked at last week. Number five, pure speculation. If somebody wanted to believe it and said, hey, I think this is the case, then I say, fine, as long as you realize that's just pure speculation. But what do they do? They place it at the level of a dogma. And they say, if you're going to be faithful as a Christian, you must believe it. Therefore, they are in gross error. And they are commanding people to hear and to keep the traditions of men rather than the Word of God. What a serious, serious error that is. The Lord Jesus Christ Himself, did He not rebuke Strongly, he scalded the Pharisees for teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. The perpetual virginity, a case can be made against this from the scriptures as we've seen, but in and of itself it doesn't affect any major doctrines. And there have been plenty of people who have died as virgins. Men who conceived a baby like Mary did though, but you know, interestingly, both Martin Luther and John Calvin held to this doctrine. They both believed in the perpetual virginity of, of Mary. But they didn't exalt it, to my knowledge, to the level of a dogma. I could stand corrected on that. I don't know for certain. But then what about the Immaculate Conception? What about the idea that Mary was sinless from conception all the way through her life? First of all, as we have seen, there is no sound scriptural support for this dogma. And there is solid scriptural support 
opposing this dogma. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Whereas the other two, in the end game, wouldn't be that big a deal if they're not exalted to the level of dogma. This dogma, however, begins to and does even severely encroach upon the glory of Christ. Jesus is the only one who was ever born as a human being who was perfectly sinless. And it is that sinlessness which then makes us right with God. Because Jesus then was able to bear the penalty for our sin. If he had to die for his own sin, then he could not have borne the penalty for our sin. So this dogma detracts ultimately from the glory of Christ himself. Because in this way of saying there's another sinless human being, it exalts someone to the level of Christ himself. And thus, it should be soundly rejected. Soundly rejected. And sadly, the exaltation of Mary is exactly what the Roman Catholic Church does in its dogmas about Mary. If they put all these together, they exalt her to such an extent that she is expressly close to Jesus in holiness and devotion and purity and even in redemption. For instance, the Roman Catholic Church promotes prayer to Mary because of their dogmas about her extreme merit and her extreme worth. The Hail Mary says, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mother, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. This is idolatry. Praying to a human being and asking that human being to pray for us sinners. The Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 2,679 says, Mary is the perfect orans, the perfect prayer, a figure of the church. When we pray to her, we are adhering with her to the plan of the Father who sends his Son to save all men. Like the beloved disciple, we welcome Jesus' mother into our homes, for she has become the mother of all the living. We can pray with her and to her. The prayer of the church is sustained by the prayer of Mary and united with it in hope. You see how they exalt her. And they pray unto her. Prayer should be offered to God alone. Not to any creature, no matter how blessed, including Mary. What are some things that we've learned about prayer? Prayer is a way that we glorify God. By showing that we recognize His ability and willingness to provide for us. There's no scriptural support for praying to anyone but God. I believe it is to detract from the glory of God to pray to a person and to believe that that person can hear our prayers and provide for our needs. Furthermore, we have no reason to believe that any person, consider this, even in heaven, can hear the prayers of millions of saints simultaneously. To be able to say that we can pray unto Mary and that she can hear us all is in fact to give Mary divine attributes. 
We have no reason to think that even saints in heaven can hear the prayers of all the people praying at once on the entire face of the earth, which could be millions of people at a time. We have no reason to think that she could even hear one prayer. Perhaps she could. But then, to be able to hear all the prayers of all the saints and to be able to respond? No. No. Do you see why I'm even bringing this out today or emphasizing it today? It's important for us to be ready with an answer. We need to know if we have a Roman Catholic friend who's praying unto Mary and considers these dogmas as true. We need to know what the scriptures say and how to respond with an answer. And then also there's this ultimate concern that people not detract from the glory of Christ and engage even in idolatrous practices. So as a result of these dogmas, consider also these statements from the Roman Catholic Church that are proclaimed of Mary. In their catechism, they say that it is right to call Mary our advocates, our helper, our benefactress, and our mediatrix. Mediatrix would be like the feminine form of mediator. We can call Mary our advocate, helper, our benefactress, and the one who mediates on our behalf. It also calls her the new Eve and the mother of the church. It calls her the mother of God and the seat of all wisdom. It calls her the mother of the members of Christ. And it calls her the queen over all things. And then in paragraph 972, and hear this, I'm not making this up when I say that this detracts from the glory of Christ himself. Paragraph 972 of the Catholic Catechism. It says, after speaking of the church, her origin, mission, and destiny, we can find no better way to conclude than by looking to Mary. By looking to Mary. After considering the origin, the mission, and the destiny of the church. Would not the best way to conclude looking at the origin, the destiny, the mission of the church be to look to Christ? We should contemplate what the church is in Jesus Christ. We should look to Jesus as our Savior. Thus we should realize that the Roman Catholic Church does not hear the word of God and obey it in these instances. Therefore, those who adhere to these dogmas are not blessed. But they must repent. They exalt the traditions of men. But we, we should strive to be those who hear the word of God and who keep it. What does that mean? That means we exalt Christ. We exalt Christ. What do the scriptures say of Christ? 
He is the sinless one. Second Corinthians 5.21 For God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Christ is the one who ascended into heaven, where he ever lives to intercede for us. Christ is our advocate. What does it say in 1 John 2 and verse 1? It says, If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Christ is the mediator. It says in 1 Timothy 2.5, There is one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. Christ is the head of the church. It says in Colossians 1.18 that he is the head of the church. In Colossians 2.3, it tells us that Christ is the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The Roman Catholic Church says that Mary is the seat of all wisdom. Christ is the Son of God, the glorious King. He is our hope. He is our salvation. And He must have no rivals in our hearts. And blessed, happy, blessed by God, are we who thus exalt our Savior above all men and women. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to always exalt Christ, never to raise and place on a pedestal any human being, for we are all fallen, sinful creatures. There is one, Christ himself, who is worthy of all honor and praise. We pray that we would truly hear the word of God and keep it. That we would also be careful not to fall into our own traditions and to exalt those to the level of Scripture, but that we would hear the word of you, our God, and we would be obedient unto you. Go with us this day. Guard us from error. Give us wisdom to defend the faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.